welcome to Episode 8, Season 2 of Cap Cap Aside Presents. My name is Jessica Lee, National Vice President for Student Affairs. And tonight we have with me um, Southwest District Governor Clint Whedon. And we're going to be continuing our journey through history um, of Cap Cap Aside. We started with Brother uh, National Executive Director Steve Nelson. Um, and he talked about Bo and his influence on um, Cap Cap Aside and kind of our founding. Um, and we're picking up with Clint um, as we look at um, the beginning of Kappa Kappa Psi all the way up to um, World War II. Um, so Clint, so happy you're here to join us this evening. And for our listeners out there that might not have had the opportunity to meet you, um, tell us a little bit about yourself and your history with the fraternity. Well, I imagine that's most haven't uh, had the chance, so but that's all right. Uh, I'm glad to be here tonight and join you to talk about this. Um, a little bit of my background, uh, I just within the last couple of days, uh, you know, it'll be a little bit more from when this airs, but uh, just as we're recording the last couple of days, uh, celebrated my 17th anniversary with the organization. Uh, I was initiated in the fall of 2001 uh, at the Alpha Chapter at Oklahoma State University. Uh, as a student, I held a couple different chapter offices. Uh, I seemed to be the eternal alumni secretary for, for a while. <laughs> uh, was the webmaster a uh, couple of years. Uh, was a ritual coordinator, things like that. Uh, my greater involvement in the fraternity started uh, when I was elected Southwest District member at large. Uh, and I followed that with two terms as the Southwest District president. Uh, and we don't have very many two-term presidents in this district. Uh, so I, that's a point of pride for me. Um, and I also uh, spent a bit of time on the staff at national headquarters uh, as a part-time data entry assistant, uh, entering names from chapter rosters as we prepared to launch the OMRS uh, in the years leading up to that, uh, and working on staff uh, as alumni and chapter affairs coordinator uh, for a while as well. Uh, and since then, uh, since leaving headquarters for professional opportunities uh, after I finished my master's degree, kind of been involved here and there. And then uh, in 2015, uh, through uh, outreach from someone you know, uh, Mr. Jack Lee, uh, <laughs> was invited to come back uh, and become a Southwest District Governor. Uh, which is the role that I have today. Uh, and um, it, enjoyable work, love doing it. Uh, I don't know if the kids love me doing it. Uh, apparently I'm the scary governor from what I hear. So, <laughs> but, uh, so we're still adjusting to that. Uh, but uh, no, it's it's a great opportunity. I'm, I'm thrilled to be back on board uh, helping students out in that capacity and sharing my knowledge, uh, not just administratively, but uh, in my fraternity hobby, uh, as well as we're doing tonight, which is fraternity history. And and when planning this episode for our listeners out there, um, I had the opportunity to meet Clint when I was a student um, at the 2007 National Convention. And Clint has many talents um, and passions within the fraternity, one of which I would say is parliamentary procedure. Um, you are still one of the people I would consider to be a go-to person. Um, and Clint was super helpful to me um, as I was chair of the Ritual and Regalia Committee um, in a great friend. So I'm, I'm happy um, to have you on the podcast and sharing um, your extensive knowledge and um, research that I know that you've done over the years um, about Kappa Kappa Psi and OSU and, and the Alpha Chapter. And, and you've, I know that you've really dug into all of this and I'm excited to share that um, expertise of yours with our, our listeners tonight. So am I. Uh, and like you mentioned, uh, this is stuff I've been working on uh, really almost since uh, the day I became affiliated with the organization. Uh, my start in fraternity history came uh, from a membership class project. Uh, we were kind of assigned to do research on the founding fathers. Uh, and my assigned founding father was Dick Hurst, who, it, as it turns out, over all the years I've done this, is the founding father that we have the least amount of information about. <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, yeah, so having to dig in to find a little bit more, uh, about him kind of inspired that. Uh, and that continued on, uh, as I was a student and working at headquarters, I kind of became the unofficial tour guide of Stillwater, uh, for a while, uh, taking folks around campus to places like the national shrine, uh, and then to the cemetery in Stillwater where 
uh, two of our founders and Bo are buried. Uh, and just adding to that, wanting to have something to talk about as we're giving these tours uh, kind of led into all this. And from there, it's grown into researching my chapter's history and uh, as so much of that is intertwined in the early days of the fraternity, expanding out into that. So uh, there's a lot of stuff here that uh, talk about uh, that a lot of people don't know. Uh, and it's not necessarily because they don't want to, but resources are very slim uh, for a lot of this stuff. Uh, and so that's uh, another reason I've stayed focused on it, because it allows us to share and know a little bit more about where we've come from and things like that. No, I, I think it's great. And, you know, you gave me my very first tour um, of, of Stillwater. I don't even know if you remember that or not, but um, you you were the one that, that showed me around. Um, I believe um, Alpha was hosting a workshop um, and I came to visit and, and you had shown me around with Jack um, and I got to have that tour from you. So um, very neat. And let's just dive right in. Um, I, you gave me an overview <laughs> for our listeners yeah. out there. Um, you, Clint had to give me some uh, cliff notes. Um, because uh, many of much of what we're going to talk about tonight um, is new to me as well. So uh, I love um, myself as a brother having this opportunity to, to learn too. So let's let's just go ahead and, and dive on in. And so we kind of left off with Steve, um, and he sort of talked to ended our conversation with, okay, now we have um, an established fraternity. What do we do from here? Sure. Uh, well, and from where Steve left off, kind of talking about who our founders were, uh, who Bo was and what they did and uh, finally getting the organization established. Uh, it wasn't uh, an easy process for them to get things going on campus, uh, just kind of figuring it out as they went mm -hmm. uh, on what to do. Uh, which they had some experience with. Uh, as Steve mentioned, a lot of them were founding members of social fraternities, uh, things like that on campus. Uh, so they had a little bit of background and then they got help from Hilton Ira Jones, F.D. Wickham and Bo uh, to get things going. But uh, it did take a little while. Uh, you know, we celebrate November 27th as our Founders Day. Uh it may be a little arbitrary on that. That may not exactly <laughs> be our founding date, but we really don't know for sure because uh, our records from that time are, are very slim. Uh, but we do know uh, that our incorporation and things like that with the state of Oklahoma happened in the spring of 1920. Hmm. Uh, and that's actually when uh, the fraternity was announced to campus. Uh, was in the campus newspaper in March of 1920, uh, which is actually something that I've got uh, in my files, uh, thanks to the, uh, well, at the time it was the microfiche rolls of the <laughs> campus newspaper. Uh, thankfully, they've digitized all that since then. But uh, no, it was not until the end of March 1920 that the fraternity was announced to campus uh, as having had work completed uh, and being a functioning organization. Uh, and then announcing its goals of pretty much immediate expansion, uh, recognizing that there were a lot of opportunities uh, being a band-focused organization uh, and moving forward uh, to grow the fraternity almost immediately. Uh, and that with the article uh, that was in the campus paper talks about some of that and uh, the Nothing, And it also has something that was never really official for us, uh, but our brothers who are also part of FIMU Alpha Symphonia will be familiar with something called the object, uh, with kind of their mission statement, reason for being what they're about. Uh, and this campus newspaper article has one related to Kappa Kappa Psi, but mm. never uh, in talks about what they want to do. And it really gives a guide point for where they're going to be going in the first few years of the fraternity. But again, not, not something that was ever really as at least as far as I know, because, again, records are sketchy. Sure. Uh, but at least uh, not something that was ever really official for us as a policy thing or something like that, like it kind of is for Find Mu Alpha. Uh, so uh, but going from there, uh, once they got established uh, again, spring of 1920, uh, they're there. And then uh, after that, uh, you know, uh, two months after that, uh, founders start graduating. Uh, oh, wow. I see. Yeah. I, OK, here we go. First thing I didn't know. That's yeah, crazy. Um, uh, a Frank Martin was one uh, graduated in the spring of 1920. Uh, so immediately, you know, he's you know, they've got the fraternity up and running and he's gone. Wow. Uh, and then. 
That's so funny. That's kind of like the, you know, what sort of happens when um, you have new colonies, you know, colonies where you've had these people that have helped start the colony and do all this work. And then by the time the colony gets installed, those people that have done all of the work to get them there have graduated. Absolutely. It's it's the exact same scenario. Um, A. Frank Martin, Clyde Haston is class of 1920. Uh, William Coppage is class of 1920. Uh and I think that's all. Wow. Yeah. Uh, there's a bunch more in the class of 1921. Uh, but those three, uh, Martin, Coppage, and Haston, were gone almost as soon as the fraternity was completed. Wow. Uh, and then again, a bunch more in 1921. The rest were class of 1922. Within that three-year period, uh, they were gone from, you know, they had all gra- left the university. Sure. Uh, a couple of them came back later, uh, got master's degrees, but uh, they were, you know, out of that active period uh, very soon. You know, but as they do that, uh, you know, it gets, uh, you know, it makes things a little more interesting uh, as they try to develop things because, uh, you know, the people that, like you said, with colonies, uh, the people that have done the work are starting to be gone. Uh, and so that, you uh, Makes, it changes how things develop. Sure. Uh, and it, as our colonists and recent new members can attest uh, and starting those chapters. Well, and um, it's, they're not, you know, of course, they're in that unique position of they're not just thinking, oh, we need a membership class. So we as Alpha can keep going. They're thinking, how do we spread this to make this more than just us? So like when you think of the task at hand, it was enormous. It really was. Uh, and that's something that you uh, when we look at the history that we do have, knowing that, you know, only a few months after work was completed and the organization's got its charter and it's official. Uh, you know, we've got folks on a train going to Montana and Washington to install chapters uh, and then coming back and in 1921 uh, going down to Norman and installing uh, a, a chapter there as well. Um and really that uh, just kind of that early expansion was very it, it, haphazard is not the word I want to use, but it's kind of a descriptive word for it <laughs> uh, because it was just kind of all over the place uh, with how things went. Um, you know, but it's uh, trying to find the best way to describe this. Uh, and did, I'm coming up short, so we'll come no, back to this. No, that's OK. <laughs> did they did do we know anything on why they picked the particular schools that they did? We uh, we do a little bit, uh, and that's there was a thought process. Uh, what in really the thought process came into play a little bit later. The the first one was we're going to put out the call and see who responds. Sure, uh, and that's that's where the first folks came from. Uh, beta chapter, gamma chapter, delta chapter. Uh, but after that, there was a movement. Uh, to really try to look at stable schools, big state schools or uh, well-established private schools uh, with solid band programs that would uh, be good foundations for the fraternity, not only operationally, but in reputation as well. Uh, Kind of a, you know, improve our image by being at well-regarded institutions. Sure. Uh, there were some exceptions to that. Uh, or, or Pre-World War II chapters, there are a couple of teachers' colleges or, or normal schools, as the term was at the time, that came in. Uh, but for the most part, our chapters that are at those kind of schools did not come in until after World War II. If you look at who our chapters are in our single-letter chapter roster, our Alpha Series chapter roster, uh, these are major state institutions or major private institutions uh, where the fraternity was trying to establish itself. Um, and that goes into, there's a couple reasons for that. Again, reputation is one thing. Uh, it was also kind of the type of organization we were at the time. Uh, and this is one of the things when I talk about early history that surprises people some, uh, we were not necessarily a service organization for the first thir- almost 30 years of our existence. Really? Uh, we were we were an honor society 
or at least trying to be an honor society, kind of more in the vein of a Phi Beta Kappa or a Phi Kappa Phi, something like that. An organization with that kind of goal and reputation. It was presenting an appreciation for music by honoring outstanding band members, but not necessarily promoting college bands through service and things like that. Sure. Uh, those aspects were there, but they weren't necessarily the primary focus of what we were doing and where we were choosing to grow. Well, and, and when you when you think about um, Bo as a person and, and what he instilled in his band members, it sort of makes sense. I mean, that that's yeah. what it was in the beginning. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we had some there's a lot of folks that are part of the fraternity today uh, that would not have been part of the fraternity uh, during its early days uh, through the different membership restrictions as well as we were kind of that different sort of society. Uh, you know, you, those type of academic societies like a Phi Beta Kappa or a Phi Kappa Phi, they're looking at upperclassmen to be members, seniors, maybe juniors. And for a while, that was us as well. Uh, you had to be an upperclassman to be part of the organization, in addition to some other restrictions on membership that we'll talk about a little bit later. But uh, <laughs> the, the, that one uh, for a while ties in with kind of the reputation they were trying to build. Uh, and eventually that went away. But uh, it really played in a lot with that. Um and there's some other aspects of membership in that time uh, that we'll talk about a little bit later because they also relate to some of the other ways that things developed as we finally got organizational stuff going. Sure, sure. So, so we um, okay. So we we were definitely um, it, it gives you a different picture of of kind of what we were in the beginning, um, and we were seeking out you know particular institutions and, and establishing um, a reputation. And so, who then becomes some of the we know that some of these founders are graduating. Who starts stepping in to help guide them as they begin this journey? You know, who who were the because I know that it wasn't just Bo. You know, I'm I'm just looking right. at your notes. I know there were some people that had yeah. some some key um, impact on our beginnings. Uh, they were, there were. Um, and uh, Steve touched on some of them uh, talking about the founders, you know, William A. Scroggs. Very important. Uh, in what we do uh, throughout all of our history. Uh, a. Frank Martin, important uh, in our founding process as well. Uh, and there's a little bit uh, to A. Frank's involvement that we'll touch on uh, as well, uh, where he left, he graduated, uh, and he was away from the organization for quite a while, uh, about 15 years before he came back uh, and began to be involved again. Mm. Um, and there, there were a couple others in our founding group uh, that did came back later as well. Uh, but the one who was consistently there through it all was William Scroggs mm -hmm. and Bo. Uh, but other folks that came in as the organization began to grow uh, that were really key early figures. Uh, one of them is Scott Squires. Uh, who was our second national president. Uh, and Scott was from the Delta chapter at the University of Oklahoma, uh, helped start the organization that became the Delta chapter there, uh, was a very accomplished, uh, prominent citizen in Oklahoma City in that area, uh, was a well-known attorney. Later on uh, in life, uh, Scott became the national commander-in-chief of the VFW, Oh, wow. Uh, was, uh, yeah. So um, he's an honorary member of two tribes, uh, the Seneca tribe in New York, the Wichita tribe in Oklahoma, uh, was a key figure in helping set in motion the honorary membership of John Philip Sousa. Wow. Uh, he was also uh, our executive secretary. Uh, one of our first administrators uh, in the, as Steve talked about the position he now holds, which is executive director. Uh, Scott was the, kind of the originator of that position for the fraternity as well. Uh, and we have this, we have a thing in Oklahoma, the Oklahoma Hall of Fame to talk about our wonderful people that have done things for the state, prominent citizens. Bo is a member of that. Uh, one of our other past national presidents, Oscar Lehrer, uh, is a, pre a member of that as well. So is Scott Squires. Wow. Uh, very uh, you know, kind of mover and shaker uh, in Oklahoma at that time uh, as he progressed in his professional career. Um, wasn't necessarily uh, always focused on Kappa Kappa Psi, as you can imagine, <laughs> uh, being that kind of prominent uh, professional person. Uh 
just kind of the documentation that we have. Uh, and again, and I should note uh, as we talk about some of this stuff, a lot of the documentation that we do have comes in the form of copies of correspondence. So there are personal opinions and inflections in some of our records that we kind of have to take a step back and go, okay, you know, some of this we have to temper because this is a person's opinion as they're writing this. It's not a hard fi- fact file or something. It's, you know, a correspondence regarding an issue or another. Sure. Uh, but it does kind of give us a, a fair picture of how things were. And uh, Squires was a pretty effective officer. He was not always an effective administrator. Uh, he, you know, his president role was fine. His executive secretary role, maybe not so much. <laughs> uh, and a lot of that was because uh, he was trying to run fraternity matters out of his legal office. Uh, So everything ran out of the same office. Uh, And so you'd have chapters saying, hey, we sent you dues money six months ago. We haven't got membership cards or pins or records for our new initiates. And, you know, then they'd get a reply. Well, I haven't gotten this money that you sent six months ago. Are you sure you sent it? Things like that. Just kind of the the way communication worked in the 1920s and 30s, not having our instant communication that we do today, uh, led to a lot of difficulties, uh, especially when you have an organization like we were at the time that was not greatly organized, still feeling its way and trying to figure out what to do and how to be cohesive as a national organization. So everything in flux at the same time. And I imagine uh, from just what you're saying that he was a one man operation as well. Uh, It's either uh, one man or whoever his secretary was (laughs) for the for the legal office. (laughs) Yes. So uh, because, yeah, and uh, in kind of our in some of our records, you'll see different addresses for our national headquarters from that time uh, when Squires was the executive secretary. uh, And it's because he got a new legal office. He would move his offices. And when he moved, so did headquarters. So there's like there's like three office towers still standing in downtown Oklahoma City that have all been our national headquarters at one time or another because that's that's where Squires (laughs) kept his office. Oh, so so we were okay. So that's, you know, a fact there, too. So we we were where he was located. So it wasn't in Stillwater. It was at his legal office in OKC. Yes. Uh, National headquarters did not come to Stillwater until a Frank Martin became the executive executive secretary. Uh, and that and it really did at that time, because that's where he lived. Uh, there was no uh, permanent space for national headquarters as here is our office. It is permanent uh, until late in uh, a Frank Martin's tenure uh, as the executive secretary when space finally was acquired on the Oklahoma State University campus in the music building. Uh, And that's not the current music building. That was the previous music building that's no longer standing. But that's okay because everything I've ever seen says it was almost a death trap. (laughs) For the best. Which, of course, that's yeah, of course, that's going to be the music building. So. <laughs> uh, but uh, Squires was a very important person, uh, especially taking over uh, and really kind of expanding the fraternity's uh, operational reach uh, from just being members of the Alpha chapter as the National Council. Uh, because our first National Council was entirely composed of the founders. Uh, all the positions on there were filled by somebody who was part of the founding group uh, because it was all set up during the founding process. Uh, And we didn't have a representative national council of multiple chapters until after the first national convention in 1922. Uh, And at that one, we ended up with a representative of each chapter on the national council uh, to fill spots. And that's continued on since and, and been split up. But uh, you know, that, that first convention uh, where Squires became national president and helped organize things there uh, really changed a lot of that and started to help, you, when you that's when you started to see a little more progression in kind of national things, because now it wasn't just concentrated in a group from Alpha, most of whom are no longer on in college. Sure. So. So uh, was that that first national council then? Was it made up of students that were active or were it was it just people that had graduated? That, that the first, first national council was uh, the you mean the one elected in 1922? Yes. Uh, both. Uh, there were some that were uh, moving on, uh, but then there were some that were still students. Uh, it was uh, and that kind of goes back into one of the membership things that uh, will surprise people. 
as well. Uh, and I'll get to that here in just a minute, because that really is uh, that it, that membership tidbit is one of the things that really blows people's minds about this time frame. Uh, so, um, but uh, it, finishing up with Squires, uh, you know, the had you had some of the complaints that came in about a, a, you know office procedures and things like that, and the functionality of the national office, and some of those continued on for quite a while, and then uh, got some personal disagreements uh, thrown in there as well uh, with some people who tried to make things happen when they had personal disagreements, you know, they would, uh, make sure to resolve those by making, you know, getting someone else out. (laughs) Uh, and in doing so, that's, uh, part of that dissatisfaction with certain things with, uh, Squires is what led to a Frank Martin coming back to the organization in the late 1930s. Hmm. Uh, and after all that, uh, one of the other key figures in the early part of the fraternity's history, uh, is a name that will be very familiar to everyone, and that is Jay Lee Burke. And uh, it's Jay Lee's impact on the fraternity as a national organization is really hard to state uh, because it's so immense. Mm. Uh, Jay Lee is someone that we would not be where we were at that time and where we developed uh, over the course of the years without him. Uh, would you know kind of talking earlier about parliamentary procedure and things like that that's that's jay lee for <laughs> us he is that guy uh and this is something maybe older folks will know because we used to have it in the guide to membership but we don't now uh because we don't have the guide to membership <laughs> but uh you know jay lee was considered our authority on fraternity governance for years uh, he was parliamentarian for life uh and took that seriously as uh, far as I know. Uh, I, you know, I didn't have the privilege to know Jay Lee, obviously, but uh, there are still folks around the organization who did. Uh, and I've never heard a bad word about him. Uh, he is someone, he uh, stabilized our administrative procedures as national president, uh, helped create the first functioning fraternity constitution. Uh, we had bylaws and things like that before he was in charge, but he helped get us a document that was really going to work. Uh, and provide structure for us as a national organization uh, and introduced our parliamentary procedures and how our meetings operated and things like that. Uh, Really just kind of got things in shape uh, on the national level uh, for us, uh, which we needed at the time. Uh, You know, we were uh, growing, but loosely affiliated in a lot of ways uh, as a national organization in the 1920s. uh, And Jay Lee brought a lot of that together. Uh, and someone that was important uh, because he, uh, he himself was kind of a national figure um, moving around a little bit. Uh, Jay Lee was a brother of the Ada chapter at Ohio State, uh, but he spent most of his later life in New Mexico uh, and back and forth. So uh, having been in multiple places and then uh, and if I remember right, Jay Lee was actually born in Oklahoma. So <laughs> uh, he's kind of uh, all over and. You know, so that connected as well, you know, knowing how to, op, you know, how difficult things like communication and administration could be when you're dealing with distance. Mm-hmm. But Jay Lee, Scott Squires, uh, really important folks uh, in the early part of the fraternity, you know, that first 10 year period. Uh, and they are the uh, national presidents uh, that lead into Bo. Uh, so it's really all in that time frame, uh, really getting things developed. Um, so kind of mentioned some of this stuff and just to restate a little more formally, you know, and from our founding until the first national convention, there's really little organization on the national level for us. Uh, we've got our national offices, our grand council, as they were known at the time. Uh, but there's not a lot of definition of what they do. Uh, there aren't really any definite goals for them other than get more chapters, so uh, it's a, a little bit open there. Uh, you know, expansion really was the primary object. Uh, not much else was really functioning the way we know it to function today sure. or the way it should have even been functioning then. Uh, but we did eventually, as Scott Squires came in and Jay Lee came in and we began to get the more chapters in, uh, we began to become a more cohesive organization. 
rather than simply a loose collection of far-flung band clubs, which is <laughs> kind of what we were for a while. You know, we're going from Oklahoma to Montana to Washington to Mississippi to Pennsylvania. You know, yeah, and it's, you know, that's one of the things that I had wondered about is like, how did we, when you look at our single letter chapters, it's like we, it wasn't like you would, th- one would think you, they would have, you know, started in Oklahoma and then maybe gone south to Texas, you know, that it the expansion would be geographical, but it really wasn't that way. And so listening to you kind of explain the reasoning why and what they were trying to do, now it makes total sense in my head. Yeah. Yeah. They they sent out a call. Uh, and that's one of the things they actually talk about uh, in that newspaper article announcing the fraternity's founding is, you know, we're sending a call out to colleges to, you know, see who's, you know, like minded out there. Uh, and so some of these pl- schools had their own kind of band club uh, or similar organization. And those groups ended up being the ones that petitioned to become chapters uh, of the fraternity. Uh, and that actually is uh, where our petitioning process came from. Uh, it literally was a petition. Uh, it was a, you know, uh, a lot of the things we asked to be included in the petitioning documents and um, things from our colonies today go back to the earliest petitions that we have. Uh, and because it was, they would get the call uh, decide they were interested in becoming a chapter uh, and they would have to petition the fraternity to join. And so each chapter would get a copy of the petition from a group that wanted to join. And each chapter had to vote to approve a new chapter to come in. <laughs> yeah. And I'm not, I don't have it down. Uh, there's a point when that ended, but I'm not particularly sure when it was. Uh, but I know at least for our early chapters, you know, into the 1920s, you know, a lot of our single letter chapters, that was the case. The petition was a literal petition to see if they would be allowed to join. And, you know, like many secret societies, uh, if someone was blackballed, you know, and it only took one, no vote, a group would be excluded. Uh, and there's one chapter that I won't name, but uh, tried and had its membership open ended for a few months while the executive secretary worked on the no voting chapter to try to get them to change their mind. Uh, eventually he did. And that that group became a chapter. But it was uh, there. There's some records about the reason they're like, well, we heard they use high school kids in their band and we're not going to support that. Like, what do you have any proof of this? Well, not really, but that's what we heard. So we're voting no and having to convince them. No, just give us, you know, to work with this group. It's a good group. Eventually they change their mind and go. But it, that could have happened to any of them. You know, it's with the way that the voting was set up at that time. That's what drama uh, so, looked like in the fraternity in the 20s. <laughs> yes. So, <laughs> you know, it's funny you know, because I, you know, I have a particular passion about the old batons. Um, it's one of yes. the things when I get to come to headquarters, I'm, I love looking through the old batons. And uh, when we were writing The Road to Wisdom, there's lots of little quotes and things that you find throughout that we've pulled from batons. And one of the things just going on that, you know, you had to vote um, is that how that baton was really the form of communication to chapters. And I was always struck by in in the early days how they would list the chapter and then all of the members of that chapter. And so just thinking, you know, making that connection of how they all had to vote and everything, you know, that is the way that they communicated everything was because that's what they had was was through that baton and so it's crazy to think of um the responsibility of the chapter to the national organization at that time um because they were involved in in lots of decisions just from what you're saying it was and that was also responsibility of some a a position a national position that we had uh called grand editor uh, which was uh, either elected or appointed uh, for a while. It was elected, then became appointed. Uh, that person was in charge of the baton. Uh, and that's that's actually where William Scroggs stayed involved for many years was as the editor uh, and in charge of the baton and making sure that that information was being collected and finding it out if you hadn't heard from a chapter and getting it all put together to make those publications. Uh, and as someone who's looked through those, you'll know that when you get into – kind of the later 20s and into the 1930s, there aren't a whole lot of batons to read there. 
uh, no. that's no. there. Uh, and that is uh, moving into the Great Depression. Uh, and that took a that had a significant impact on us uh, as an organization. Uh, we weren't you know, we'd only been around for about 10 years when it hit. Uh, we weren't in the best of financial conditions or organizational conditions uh, to weather something like that. And it uh, really took a toll on us. Uh, if you look at, uh, re- at our records, and this is one of the things we used to have in the guide to membership, uh, but kind of has uh, founding dates of all our chapters, their charter dates. Uh, and if you look at the early list, uh, up through about 1929, we had chartered 27, I think it's 27 chapters through 1929. So our first 10 years, we're averaging almost three chapters a year. Mm-hmm. And we're doing, yeah, at the time, that's pretty solid, knowing what our communication issues are, things like that. You know, we're, we're moving pretty well. Uh, and then there's another big chunk of chapters that comes in in 1931. Uh, and then there's almost none on, for the next few years. Wow. Uh, I think it was... Uh, let me pull that. I'm going to pull that up now because I think I've got that up. Well, and, uh, and you know, you, you keep referencing some of the stuff in the guide to membership. I believe yeah. I know for a fact, at least that um, is when chapters are founded are now on the new um, Centennial website. Um, they you we know, go. if we go to um, if you go to the interactive timeline, um, every chapter and their founding date um, is on that interactive timeline. So if you're curious about some of what Clint's talking about, I know you can uh, view that on the Centennial website. Absolutely. And I should have mentioned that, but my brain defaults to the guide to membership because that's what I've had in my That's bag. what, right? That's what, that's what we were used to when we were active. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, let me get to that list. And because I'm trying to remember how many were in 31 that came in. There we go. Uh, so, yeah, through through 1929, uh, we'd gotten up through the Alpha Gamma chapter. Uh, which is an inactive chapter at Duke University. Uh, And then we had a big chunk of chapters come in in 1931. Uh, About six or seven more came in there. So end of 1931, we've got about, we've been on 33, 34 campuses. Wow. And then when we get to the 1941 National Convention, kind of coming out of the Depression and the 30s and everything that's there, we're still only at 43 chapters. Wow. Uh, it just it our expansion just fell off a cliff once the depression hit uh, and the way things went. Uh, so that was a that was a really tough time for us developmentally as well. Uh, you know, we finally get through the 20s. We're getting organized, things like that. And then the depression hits uh, and it's a big setback for us. Uh, we actually a, a lot of our chapters that we started during the early years, uh, we lost during that time frame. Some of them we never got back. Mm-hmm. Uh, they went inactive in that, it, you know, during the 1930s and have never come back to the organization uh, chapter. You know, that's chapters uh, like the Zeta chapter at Penn State. So has been gone for years. And wow. Uh, the Kappa chapter at Colorado State University, you know, some of these, uh, you know, chap- uh, excuse me, you know, some of them just they went away very early uh, and couldn't get reestablished. Well, you know, and, once and, things yeah, and, and things changed. And, um, I, you know, I would also imagine that there was um, a financial impact. Obviously, if we were losing yes. um, chapters at that time, then that's people that are not, you know, paying dues. And, and that I'm certain had a uh, impact on our operations and the way that we were able to do things. So it makes sense that there weren't very many podiums because yeah. we probably couldn't afford yeah, it. Absolutely. That's there. That's the biggest piece of physical evidence right there is that they're not is that the baton is so infrequent. Oh, yes, baton, sorry. <laughs> yeah, during uh, during the 1930s is we simply didn't have the money to publish it. Uh, and it had we had to go through a lot of procedures after the Depression to reestablish the publication and make sure everything was ready to go again so that we could return to that. Um, so, yeah, a lot of difficulty there uh, as well. Um, but we did eventually come out of it uh, and until we hit World War II. And then we got to then we got a really big uh, hit from that. But uh, we'll save that for future discussion and <laughs> uh, how all that went. Um, but uh, it's it's tough to talk about that, uh, the Depression and the 20s and uh, all that a little bit, uh, because, as we've said, uh, there are so few records. 
Uh, and part of that is a lot of the records that were kept, uh, again, you know, Scott Squires was our executive secretary for all this time and the headquarters is in his office. So he was in possession of all the records and some of those we have, and some of those, I don't know that we do. And then, uh, things have been replaced through the years, you know, recopied into other things. Uh, if, uh, someone took a look at the hard bound ritual or not ritual books, uh, membership roster books, uh, that we've kept, uh, you know, that's how we used to keep track of chapter rosters was we had books, uh, where names would be typed onto a sheet of paper in order, uh, each time initiates were reported and it was just kind of the master hard copy roster. Well, the, even the oldest ones though, aren't the original versions of that hard copy roster. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was one that was redone, uh, and typed up and made, you know, in the same size that would fit in the ledger book. Uh, and so some of those you'll see, oh, well, here's this person we forgot to put on the roster when they were actually, you know, when we were retyping this, when they were actually initiated. So they're here three pages later with the same, the correct date. Oh, Lord. Things like that. So, <laughs> yeah. So, it's you, know, like a so you can, you can, you can tell that things have been recopied, you know, so uh, some of those original things we don't have. And then uh, just, you know, in general, you know, not having some of those records. And then, uh, you know, we're not, uh, I know you and Steve talked briefly on, uh, the 1968 fire, uh, in the last episode, but, uh, we don't know what might've been lost in that either. So, uh, but we know it, I know it affected some of the records because I've seen the ones we still have that are singed. So really see that uh, I've not seen that. That's crazy. Uh, there are some things, uh, not just in archives, but in some of the, uh, ch- individual chapter files, uh, that have fire damage, uh, and they were kept because they're important. One of them was the national ledger book. The fraternity's bank account book, uh, was partially singed, uh, from that time frame. Uh, and there's some other things as well. Uh, but you know, so we know it, you know, it, could have affected things, but we don't know exactly what. Sure. Uh, and so it's tough to tell what might be missing and if something actually ever existed at all. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, it, and our record keeping was not as extensive as it is today. Uh, that's another thing that, uh, you know, we, we tend to fall into thinking of, oh, well, they, you know, you had an initiate group, so you filled out the initiate registration form and uh, submitted that and got everybody recorded and did so in a timely manner so you didn't get late fees and things like that. And <laughs> you had activity reports to fill out about what the chapter did each, you know, during the year. And the 20s and 30s, that we had none of that. Uh, none of that kind of reporting. We would have chapter reports at conventions. Uh, they would, you know, a chapter would write up the, what their activities had been uh, and present that, uh, which was a practice that continued on uh, even after we eventually started kind of the national reporting system. Uh, but, you know, that was when you heard about what a chapter had been doing uh, when they gave that report or when they send an in information to the baton. Well, uh, and that and that makes sense because again, yeah. I mean, when you think of the time period and how small we were at the time and the way we were operating, that totally makes sense that they would get together and share um, when they all got together at a national convention because they were so small. And um, I totally know what you're talking about in those batons because that's one of the things that. Uh, um, I find so interesting is that they do have updates from every chapter. If you look in, in some of them, they'll do each chapter does an update um, or um, even just like uh, life events. There's jokes in there. Um, you know, I, that's oh, one of the, and the jokes are so terrible. They are so <laughs> terrible. But the writing of the time was beautiful, you know, and, and um, some of the stuff we have pulled into the road to wisdom, um, which is like the importance of um, music at our universities by Sousa um, that he wrote for the baton, one of my favorites. Um, and also um, the little poem by John uh, Lonergan, Lagerin, um that we have in there, who will furnish the music, uh, the music and the musicianship lesson. Um, there was just some super neat things um, that were captured um, in those batons because that was, again, that was just the way that they were able to communicate. And to me are some of our neatest records because they were um, in some ways a little bit informal with the jokes and, and stuff like that too. It just, it, it gets me because there's just such an over-reliance on puns and it's so bad. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but it is a lot more, 
literary in tone uh, in some of that language and the things that they did uh, and the communication. Uh, and, you know, in talking about those kind of things and that being the way they communicate, you also have to remember that our national office, as they're operating, you know, we're not getting notifications from the national office about this or that. You know, that stuff's coming out in the baton. Mm-hmm. Uh, national office primary work is okay. You, you send us money and a list of names. Here's your membership shingles and pins for your new people. <laughs> and, you know, and dealing with the, the correspondence of why haven't we gotten this six months later? So, so would we uh, at what point did we how would they if you were a new chapter, um, would they also come and install and, and bring ritual books? Was that practice going on? Do you know at that time? Um, yeah, there, uh, there would be installations. Uh, someone would go to a campus and install a chapter. Uh, but as far as you know, bringing ritual books and things like that, uh, maybe not so much. Uh, the way we handled our publications was very different then. Uh, and things like uh, the National Constitution was a little more available. Uh, but things like the ritual book were very closely guarded. And it was also not a complete thing. Uh, and I don't want to get too much into detail on that. Uh because I know that we may have listeners who are not fully initiated members, so we don't want to talk too much detail. Uh, but it's from research that I've been part of and working with Aaron Moore at National Headquarters, who does a really wonderful presentation on the history of the ritual. Uh, you know, we kind of suspect that there might have been two ritual books and part certain parts are in one book and certain parts were in another book and they were kept separate so that you had to have both to have a complete picture. Oh, interesting. Uh, and just kind of the way things are, are related to other societies, kind of the way things were done with that, uh, you know, just, and, and again, that's spitballing because we've seen one of those books, but not necessarily the other. So uh, that, again, the, uh, the we, missing records and, yeah. and filling in the blanks. We, we don't know for sure that there's two, but we know for sure there was at least one and that one wasn't complete. So <laughs> uh, so it's it was very different then. Uh, but, you know, some of those supplies and things like that would have also come through the national office. But uh, as far as installations, it wasn't too different, but it was usually uh, a national officer or someone or a nearby brother would go and do those kind of installations, someone who could be close and take care of that. Uh and th- and you could do things like that uh, because outside of the national office and holding that, uh, and we say national, but at the time, you know, again, a reminder: our terminology for many years was grand. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this would have been the grand president or the grand council uh, doing these things. Well, and but, just uh, and just thinking about yeah. that term "grand" too, because it, you know a piece of fraternity jewelry that is rarely seen um, uh, unless, um, you know, one of the president's club um, happens to be uh, wearing their ring at the time. And even then, um, you know, students don't, don't get to see it. Um, You you know, my, my husband um, is a past national president and he, um, the, the president's ring, you know, is of course beautiful and and unique in that it's Bo's ring. And it does say grand president um, on that ring. And um, it's, uh, a beautiful, extraordinary, in my opinion, piece of jewelry um, to know that you're you're wearing um, a, a replica um, of of what Bo wore, and just that that little piece because that's not it's not a piece of jewelry that's necessarily on our website that our students see all the time. So, little bit of trivia there. Yes, but if they do want to see one uh, and they happen to be in Stillwater, there is one on display uh, at national headquarters and some of our history things from one of our other past national presidents. Uh, So if you're interested in what the uh, president's ring looks like, that is there is one you can view. I but didn't know it that. May take, yeah, you may have to take a little bit of a trip to see it, though. So. And hopefully, hopefully you will uh, yes. in July of 2019. Yes. So. <laughs> One of the things uh, that we have uh, that I've alluded to a couple times and in talking about you know, who's doing installations, things like that, uh, as we were, uh, you know, we talk about kind of the way membership was done at the time. And 
it, this is one of the things uh, that as I've done this presentation uh, for students uh, and talked about this information, this is one of the things that really kind of throws everyone for a loop. Uh, membership up until a certain point, which I don't have in my notes, but I have a pretty good idea when it changed. Uh, but uh, it was much more egalitarian uh, in our early years. Everyone was pretty much an equal brother. Uh, we didn't have different statuses like alumni brother or associate brother or conditional or things like that. Everyone was a brother. And you were from one chapter. The concept of a chapter honorary was not something that came along until later. Hmm. Uh, and so you would be considered to be from your initiating chapter no matter what. Um, and you would be considered to be an equal brother even if you were graduated and out for of school for a few years or if you were still active. Everyone was kind of on the same playing field. Uh, and I, the example I have for this, uh, there is we have kind of there's a mention of it in one of the batons, uh, but we also have the minutes of the convention in district files uh, from the 1940 District Three convention, which at the time was Oklahoma and Texas and New Mexico and Colorado, I believe. <laughs> Uh, so a little bit different than what we're used to, uh, but a district convention nonetheless. Um, and there were listing of the district officers and the district president was the president of the alpha chapter. And the district vice president, I think it was vice president, uh, was a brother from the Delta chapter. But he was actually the band director overseeing the Alpha Rho chapter at Northeastern State University in Tahlequah, Oklahoma. <laughs> and he had become a brother as a graduate student when he was enrolled at the University of Oklahoma. Uh, and mentioning Aaron Moore earlier, this was a name Aaron wasn't familiar with because this brother is not on the roster of the Alpha Rho chapter, even though he was the band director in charge of them when they were founded. Because he was a brother of the Delta chapter, and that's oh, how he I was see what considered. You're yeah, okay. And and again, even when he was a band director, a college band director, he was second in line to an active student on the district council. That's so, crazy. Yeah. So a very different type of a very different view of membership uh, at that point in the fraternity. Um, and eventually that did change, uh, especially post-war, uh, when you started to see more development of kind of the, you know, when the college band directors really kind of became the force on the National Council and moving through, you really started to kind of see that separation more mm -hmm. uh, between alumni brothers and active brothers and, and professional responsibilities and students and things like that. But uh, for a long time, uh, everyone was kind of on equal footing uh, within so, the organization. So do you, do you think, or do we know, um, it, uh, say, you know, I, I haven't been back to my chapter, you know, I graduated in 2008. So would I be able to go to a chapter meeting and vote, even though I wasn't a student? It, the dues paying did come in. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, it was more of a, uh, you know, you would be, it wasn't a kind of how we have with alumni procedures now, and the way we operate, some of those things wouldn't have been there. It would be, oh, this brother who graduated came back to visit us right. and do this. Uh, but if you'd gone to a convention or something like that, you still would have just been a brother. Crazy. So it's uh, it, 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 that was one of the things, you know, I said it throws everybody for a loop when I talk about that. It threw me for a loop when I figured out this is what that meant, finding those documents. And it's like, this is, we'd never go for something like that today. No, yes, <laughs> so. that a band director was on the council second to an active student. I mean, that's yeah. crazy. Or that a band director was on the district council. Or district council, sorry. Place. Yeah, right, on a yeah. district so, council. Um, and, and you saw a little bit of that in the national council as well. Uh, because you did have a mix of alumni brothers and active students, and that continued on into the 1930s. Uh, and that was something also you saw uh, in the National Council at the time. Uh, we have the concept uh, kind of, yeah, I've heard it referred to as the progressive line. You know, you start in the lowest office and you continue on through all of them in 
in line, uh, advancing each term. You know, nobody repeats in office, anything mm-hmm. like that. That's not how we used to do things. Uh, some of our uh, secondary offices, uh, when grand secretary and grand treasurer were separate offices or grand second vice president, people would be elected to these spots uh, and maybe not seek another term after that, or they would run for reelection to that post. Mm. Uh, it was only the person elected grand first vice president, which is now our national vice president for colonization and membership, the expansion officer of the fraternity, that person would advance uh, at the next convention to become national president. But they were the only one that was required to do so. Everybody else could rerun for the same office, and some did. Uh, So you would see people repeat terms on the National Council, uh, some of them for years at a time, uh, running for the same office. So that's interesting, you know, knowing that our our concept that when basically when you, you know, when we elect a a VPCM, we are electing the president-elect has been there for a very long time. Yes. Uh, The only one, you know, other than... Uh, early on, uh, where that changed, um, you know, some of our earliest national presidents did not serve as grand first vice president, but some of those grand first, first vice presidents didn't return to beco- try to become national president either. Sure. So you saw some of that. But uh, once that came in, those folks did advance, but other national officers did not have to advance. Uh, so you you would see people on the National Council for a couple of terms in the same position. Uh, so very uh, different kind of operation there as well. Sure. Uh, and again, one of the things that really throws people on just how different uh, those kind of operations could be. Yeah, it's interesting to kind of think of that uh, concept because, you know, we really haven't seen that in our modern times of um, someone um, running more than one term for the same office. Not that I can think of. Right. So uh, one of the other things with membership at that time uh, that I should mention, uh, because it has confused people on different things through the years, and I know it has because it used to confuse me too. Um, We talk about honorary membership. And if you look in some of the older records, and I'm sure you've probably seen the terminology looking through the batons, things like that, you'll see someone referred to as a national honor member or national honorary member, something like that. Well, that's exactly what it meant. They were a member, they were an honorary member of the national chapter. But for many years, those people were recorded on the rosters of the chapter that did the initiating of that brother. Mm. Uh, So you see a lot of references to Bo as a national, as the first national honor member. Well, it meant Bo was supposed to be an honorary member of the national chapter, but he's recorded as the first member of the alpha chapter. Mm. Uh, John Philip Sousa was recorded as a national honor member, but he's on the roster as an honorary of the Delta chapter. (laughs) Things like that. Uh, and because just because of the way record keeping was done, uh, it didn't end up applying. And at some point, something switched in how the record keeping was done. And some of these folks that were really considered to be national honoraries at the time they were brought in uh, didn't get recorded that way and continue in our records today. Uh, and it's not something that's easy to fix because we never had a full list of who were the national honor members right. uh, <laughs> recorded, uh, you know, because some folks were, you know, you, that's where when you had uh, the original chapter honoraries, that's where that came in was you'd have someone visit a campus or something like that. Uh, and they would present them as an honorary member for doing whatever on that campus. And it was very strict with regard to that, staying in that chapter. Uh, and then the national was supposed to be more of a grand honor kind of thing. Uh, and that didn't really get rearranged until later. Uh, and I know there's there was at least one, maybe two votes to make all past national presidents honorary members of the grand chapter of Kappa Kappa Psi. <laughs> uh, some of whom had already been grand members, but record keeping wasn't good. So they didn't know that. Uh, <laughs> 
Well, and, and, uh, and when we, we think about it, you know, that that's sort of what we do today, right? You know, that's yeah. one of the votes that happens um, at the end of convention is that we offer the uh, honorary life membership uh, to our past national presidents. And then because, um, again, we have listeners out there that may not know. And then our um, um, all of our past national presidents um, are um, voting members of the national delegation. So um, they do have a vote the same as a chapter um, and the same as um, every member of the council and our um, districts as well. Our district presidents um, serve as delegates. So, so, okay. I'm looking over the notes that uh, we're sharing. I think we've talked actually about a lot of this. Um, there's some other little bits of trivia here and stuff before we get kind of the, to the last couple of big events and folks to talk about, because talking about them really is more on a timeline and kind of locks things into place, uh, <laughs> as we get to things. But, uh, one of the other things, uh, that will throw people off. And I, I'm sure that you've seen this in batons, Jessica is, uh, references to chapters with their state name. Yes. Yeah. And. Originally, our chapters were named in the convention of some uh, other honorary and social organizations uh, with regard to their state. Uh, the Alpha chapter was originally Oklahoma Alpha. The Delta chapter was originally Oklahoma Beta. Uh, Beta chapter was Montana Alpha and Gamma chapter was Washington Alpha. Uh, the system did not last very long but, <laughs> uh, because it's uh, really tough to keep track of that kind of thing uh, when you're going all over the place like they were at the time mm -hmm. uh, with expansion. You know, when it's Washington, Montana and Pennsylvania and Mississippi and uh, Colorado and Oklahoma <laughs> and all over. Uh, everybody's the alpha chapter at some point. <laughs> well, and, you know, and just listening to what you've said about Squires, I'm sure he didn't want to yeah. keep up with all that either at the time. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> you know, which, which alpha are we talking about? So uh, that it was not a long lasting thing. But uh, if you see references to that in our documents, that's why, uh, because originally those kind of naming conventions were used, but it wasn't a thing that we kept going for very long. Um, very interesting. So, 